Good morning, CBC. Today I'm going to read from Colossians 3.18 to 4.1. Wives, be submissive to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Masters, supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Have a great day, everyone. Welcome to CBC this morning. I love it when people read the scriptures from their lake houses. It just makes me feel closer to God, everybody. Let me tell you that right now. Welcome to CBC. Before we get down to business, we got some family business to tend to uh, for the next month. Every week, I'm going to get up here at the start, and we're going to talk about love packs, and you're thinking, Charlie, I know what love packs are. Good. You're going to get told again and again and again because every November leading into December, we do a food drive for love packs. And I'm just going to fill in the blanks if you have some blanks. Love packs is an organization in the Flower Mound, Louisville area. And they provide boxes of food for families whose kids don't eat when they're not at school. And so Christmas break for those families is not as celebratory as it is for others. So what we do throughout the month of November is we have this massive food drive. Throughout our building, actually in the lobby and in the auditorium, you're going to see different pallets with different signs up that say things like jelly or macaroni and cheese or canned vegetables. Because throughout the month of November, we're going to collect all sorts of food. And then on November 29th, We're taking our Sunday morning and we're going to pack a couple hundred boxes to give to families so the kids might eat over the holidays. It's how we start our Christmas season, a season that's oftentimes typified by what we get and we want to say it's about what we've been given because Jesus gives to us. So just so you have a visual of what's going on, we have a a small display that we're going to share every week, probably Wednesday, Thursday and update it and then um, that you can see kind of what we need. These are the things that we need to buy. It's very list specific, so go online under the events page. But just to show you, we need 1,200 bags of popcorn. We need 2,000 granola bars. We need 1,200 things of applesauce. I say that to say this. This is not a time to bring one thing of applesauce and feel good about your service. This is a time to buy out Costco, everybody, okay? I'm just letting you know we are going to be shameless in our plug to make you feel like you need to do more. This is as Baptist that we get at CBC, Okay. I'm going to bring the guilt and shame if we're not getting there in about two weeks. I just want you to know that right now because it's a better good. Because we want to serve our community and we want to show people that Jesus loves them by giving them some food, which is one of my favorite ways to do that. So you can drop off things every Sunday, obviously, or during the week. Uh, You can come up here and... Either drop it in the airlock right here or walk in the building if you want to and put it on the specific pallet. Sound good? All right, I'm going to get up here every week and we're either going to celebrate the bar going up or I'm going to be, you know, like angry father figure. Be like, guys, we can do better. Just to let you know, all right? It's going to be great. But now let's get into the text. So this morning we come here to open the word of God, to see the character of God, to talk about the goodness of God. And in our text today, we're going to see how God designed families a little bit. But before we do that, Especially this week, I need to recenter myself and understand what God is doing in our midst. And so we come here on Sunday mornings, and there are so many other things going on, and there's so many other places we could be, and there's so many other things that we could watch online. But we stop down because God has a word for us. We stop down because He's good. We stop down because we trust that the Holy Spirit's going to do something in our spirit this morning. 
We say it every week. We don't want to be critics in this conversation. We want to contribute to what God is doing in our communities. And so that takes work on our part. So we're just going to take a second and pray. I'm going to ask if you're comfortable that you pray quietly to yourself and just ask that the Holy Spirit does something this morning. And he might use my preparation for his good. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that we can be here. In the chaos of what our culture is right now, I'm thankful there's a place we can come back to and have a constant that doesn't change, have a good that's not influenced by election outcomes, that that we know that you are bigger than all the chaos of our culture. And today, as we stop down, we get to meet with you and hear from your scripture. Holy Spirit, do a work in our spirit this morning. Don't just teach us, but, but encourage us to live in the rhythms of Jesus. Don't just let us know about how God wants us to live, but may we find joy in living how God calls us to live. Holy Spirit, move our spirits this morning as we open your scripture. I pray um, that you meet us here and that you teach us. And I'd ask that you take just a couple seconds right now and say a silent prayer to yourself, asking the Holy Spirit to show up and show us more of God this morning. I'd ask that you just pray for me, that God uses the preparation to just reveal more of who he is to our community today. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. All right, open your Bibles. We're in Colossians chapter three. I was thinking this week of how the pandemic mess started for the Ridenauer family. And it was that first Monday morning in the middle of March, and my kid wasn't going to daycare for the first time, and my wife was staying home from work, and I was working from home. And I'm sitting at the kitchen table, and I remember being very thrown off because of things that I normally could control, I wasn't in control of, and my, more, my normal Monday mornings didn't look like my normal Monday mornings, and I was getting just a very bit frustrated. And... That came out, I guess, in my tone, hard to believe, but it did. And my wife stopped down about 15 minutes in and says, hey, look, if this is going to happen for a while, we've got to make some changes because this is not working, right? Right away, I was told that I need to have a little more patience, a little more compassion, a little more flexibility in this pandemic world. And if you know me and you know my wife, you can see that happening very easily. And it got me thinking about this text this morning. It got me thinking about families. It got me thinking about really the whole picture of Colossians. Because what Colossians does is it informs our new life in Christ. It says because Jesus re-identifies you and calls you into something different, it changes all facets, all avenues, all relationships. But here's what I found. I'm a professional Christian. And oftentimes the hardest place to follow Jesus and to show the love of Jesus is within the walls of my home. Sometimes the hardest people to love like Jesus are the people that I live with. It's very difficult sometimes because you can't escape them in pandemic worlds, you know? I love what one author said. He basically talked about how living our faith out in Jesus in our family, the family is the most difficult proving ground for our faith as followers of Jesus. And I found that to be true, whether it's my wife or my kid or my family growing up. So often it's really difficult to show Christ-like love with the people that you live with. And and as Paul unpacks what it means to be in the family of God, today he deals directly with families. He deals directly with fathers and and mothers and, and husbands and wives. And he deals directly with how we show people in the proving ground of our families that our faith is changing us. Because in the first century world, it looked a lot different than it does today. 
So we're going to be in this chunk of scripture from verse 18 in chapter 3 to 4, 1. And you've got to know a couple things before we dive in together. You've got to understand the context. And the context is, is really key. It always is when we read the scriptures, but sometimes it gives us more insight on scriptures that we need to understand as we unpack them and figure out what God is saying. So when we find out more about context, oftentimes what it does is it reveals a deeper idea or version of what God is, who God is, what he called us to be. Great example would be the foot washing. I had a job uh, in between undergrad and grad school where I lived in San Francisco and I worked at this nonprofit and every Friday we would wash all these kids' feet. I hate feet. And I thought it was absolutely terrible. Here's the deal. Feet in our current context and culture that have fresh socks every day and are covered by Nikes are different than what Jesus did in John 13. When he sat down with his disciples and he said, let me wash your feet. You've been walking all day and I will not fill in the blank on what they walked in and through. When we understand context, it adds depth to our understanding of God. We got to understand in our context today, he's speaking in a first century world in a Roman, um, in a Roman paradigm that was dominated by power. So we have to understand when we get to this text that Paul's speaking into an already established system of what was. Because here's a truth about Christianity, especially in the first century world and in ours too. The gospel seeks institutional reform through individual transformation. And that's what Paul's talking through here. The gospel seeks institutional reform through individual transformation. That's going to be important to remember as he walks through. This is how your society says to love your wife and to love your kids and to love your slaves. It's important to remember that even now, because I understand and know and trust that no matter the, the institutions that are in charge of me, I know that God is working in the hearts of people, and if people change, so does our culture and our society. That's why we live out gospel in the first place. And so understanding this text, you have to get the totality of the power dynamic in the first century world. In the first century world, it was, it was obviously ran by Rome, and they were known for their power. And with their power came peace, and with their peace came prosperity. They were not known for their meekness. They were not known for their love. They were not known for their service. They were not known for their humility. They were known by their unabashed power over people because it was what made them great. That's the culture they lived in. That's what ran their families. There's a phrase in the first century world called paterfamilia. And really what that meant was, we'll put it on the screen, but the paterfamilia was the oldest living male in a household, and he exercised autocratic authority over his extended family and property. What that means is that they saw their roles in family through the lens of power everywhere. They saw their roles in family through the lens of what I want and what I need. I was reading an article this week by C.S. Lewis on family written in 1946. And sometimes when I'm reading things from like 1946, which is a couple years before my time, I'm amazed at how much wisdom I missed out on. And he talked about the family life from this sermon he listened to. And he said, family life is ruled by pretty much the tyranny of the most selfish member. Think about that. Your family life is ruled by the tyranny of the most selfish member, meaning that whom is most selfish in your family oftentimes runs your family, whether that's the husband, the wife, your two-year-old, who I won't name names of. I don't know where that would exist, right? And so in the first century world, the tyranny of the most selfish member was always the father. He had absolute control over his entire family. It came from an Aristotle idea that your family had three different levels of influence to it that you controlled. Your wife was one, your kids was one, and your slaves were one. So, so when Paul in our text knocks down wives, kids, and slaves, he's speaking into the system that already existed and is going to do two things every time. 
He's going to meet them where they are, and then he's going to challenge them to change. He's going to talk through this is what exists already, and then he's going to say, but let me tell you something radical that's going to blow your mind and change your world. So let's dive in. He says at the very beginning, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. He starts with what was expected. And understand kind of the dynamic going forward from here. You have to understand the power dynamic within the marital relationship in the first century world. It is very different than what it is now. Even if you have a quote-unquote bad marriage, it's very different than what it is now. Because just to be blunt, women were not seen as equal to men in any sphere. This isn't just a Roman world problem. This is a problem in the world back then. So I'll give you a couple examples. Whether you're Jewish or Roman or Greek, the three predominant influences in the world then, women were not seen as equals. So for example, a a Jewish phrase that rabbis said often early in the morning, they would get up and say, blessed are you, O God, king of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Every day, these men would say this. In the Greek culture, for example, uh, meals drove a lot of how we valued people and equality. And women, most times, your wives were not allowed to eat with your husbands. If they did eat with the husband, they'd be at the bench at the end of the table and they couldn't stay the whole time. When conversation turned fun, they had to get up and leave because they weren't seen as equal. There's a first century jurist in a Roman court case that said... He recounts the story of a man beating his wife to death because she drank some of his wine. And it says, his next phrase was, and his neighbors approved. The idea that women were equals was so incredibly foreign. And so Paul starts by saying, wives, submit to your husbands. That would not have blown anybody's hair back. But I think if we look at it with some nuance, it's actually challenging what they're supposed to be doing in the first place. So let's talk about that word submit for, for a sec. We're going to spend most of our time in this section because you're going to see some parallels as it's unpacked in kids and in slaves. But when we talk about that word submit, it's a hard one. I I don't know what your church background is, but I know that word has been used to to bring up a lot of pain in people's lives. (laughs) I know that word is hard as independent Americans who doesn't want to submit to anything or anyone. So a couple things to know about that word. Paul uses it over 35 times in the New Testament. He uses it um, in the epistles 20 some odd times. In, in Ephesians 5, 21, he literally says, all of us need to submit to one another as is Christ. And, and what the Bible says about that word, submit, is that it's not a four-letter word. And it's hard for us. Because in a power-driven culture, and make no mistake about it, we still live in a power-driven culture. Turn on any media outlet this week. We live in a power-driven culture. In a power-driven culture, submitting is not a strength, it's a weakness. But the Bible seems to say something different. In, in biblical currency, it seems to say that submitting then is an act of, of, of showing reverence for, awe of, respect for someone else. And so when we see this term in context, he's saying, husbands submit to your wives, submit to your husbands. A couple things about that word that blow me away, though. One is there's a couple different ways that you can interpret that word based on the um, tense that it takes in the Greek, the verb. So there's an active tense, which basically means I will force you to submit. You do not get a choice in this. It's what we see in Colossians 3. It's what we see in, um, it's what we see in, sorry, not Colossians 3, Colossians 1. It's what we see in Ephesians 1, 21 and 22, when it says that one day we will all submit to Christ. Not your choice, God's. It's going to happen. But then there's another way, it's called the passive middle voice, and that's what we find here. And what that means when we see it in that voice, in that tense, is that it's not something that somebody makes you do, it's something you choose to do. It's not something forced upon you, it's a choice that you make, it's an attitude that you take on and take up. 
What I think is profound here is in the first century world, they would have said, wives, you should be forced to submit to your husbands. Paul says, wives, it should be your decision to submit to, respect, or follow your husband. What I think is amazing here is that he doesn't say obey. He's going to say obey in the next two examples. What he says is not to listen to and do whatever they say, but, but have an attitude like Christ had in Philippians 2, when it said, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The problem is so often when we read this text and we use the word submit, we, we think in our head it's subjugation instead of submitting voluntarily because love exists. There's a big difference there. That's why Jesus could submit to the Father and other people because it was out of a place of love. I, I think when we talk about this text in this phrase, it's more about honor and less about ordering and hierarchy and organizational top-down management. Because when Jesus came in, what he said was that the guiding principle you have is that you might love one another. The second thing I find really interesting about this text is he starts with wives and he says, submit yourselves to your husband. So your husband is not, should not, will not say, hey, you need to submit to me. That is not a healthy power dynamic in a relationship, but you need to do this because in the first century world, Christianity brought immense freedom to women. You need to know that. In the first century world, Jesus came in and he radically included women where women couldn't be included. I could give you example after example after example. My favorite is he let women sit at his feet when he taught. That was a position of a disciple. That was a position of influence and of substance. And he said, you can sit and learn from me. In the first century, we have examples of women leading New Testament churches, being deacons and starting them even, if you look in Acts. We have to understand is that Jesus' ethic towards women went against the ethic of the first century world. And he said, you are equal to men because you carry my image just like men do. And so what I think he's saying here in this text is you have this massively newfound freedom in Christ. Don't abuse it. Don't let it go too far. You, you, you give up the right to rule your husband. <laughs> I remember... When I first got my driver's license, I was 16. Now they're like 27, but I was 16 when I first got my driver's license and I had a 1988 Volvo 240 DL, everybody, okay? It cost about $700. I put about $2,000 worth of speakers in that bad boy. But anyway, um, I remember when I turned 16, feeling all of a sudden for the first time like I could go anywhere I wanted and do what I wanted was incredible. And my parents are pretty good about that. They would say, yeah, you can go and go get food or you can, you know, you have a car, go be do. I think when I first got my license, I left and came back like two days later, right? Let me tell you something. That was going too far with my freedom, okay? We had to have a sit down about what it meant then to live in freedom that fully benefits everybody else in my family. And that's what Paul is saying here. Hey, submit to your husbands, even though you have a newfound equality and freedom, understand that you are not alone in this and you don't get to rule this. But so often when we teach this text, we stop there and we can't. So often we say, well, this is a principle that guides our family and let's go no farther. The problem is that Paul's speaking into a system and a clump of scriptures that's tackling a socioeconomic um, 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 uh, paradigm. And so he says right after that, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against him. When I think of texts like this, when we stop down in the middle of texts that are proving a bigger point, I always think about it like people that, that go to the beach and they stay in a hotel on the beach with a small pool and they don't get out of the small pool to go to the beach. You know what I'm talking about? 
Like we spend all our time here when the point is the beach and it's right over here, get up and go. So when we read this, we have to read it in context. So it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Might you understand the place of, of love and respect that you've been given as uh, in the marital relationships, but also husbands love your wives. That part was incredibly radical. And all the ancient te- texts that we've uncovered never once, never once before this text, have we ever found anything in any culture, Greek, Jewish, or Roman, that instructed husbands to love their wives. It told them to rule their wives told them to make their wives subject to them. It told them the wives had to obey. It never says, love your wives. Paul comes in and he says, husbands, don't just tell them what to do. Don't just make them do what you want them to do. Love your wives. I'm going to bring up the definition that we used for love a couple weeks ago. It's the rugged, conventional commitment to, one, uh, to another person to be with that one and for that one as both of you journey into Christ's likeness. When it says, Husbands, love your wife, make no mistake about it. The way that the Bible defines love is sacrifice. The way that Jesus defines love is sacrifice. So Paul, he's engaging a conversation about what it means to love. And he says, here's what it is. It means that you need to submit because there's something bigger going on than you. And it also means that you need to love. Those two things cannot be seen independently of one another. So we get this text as husbands in a power-driven culture, and our job is to sacrifice for our wives and love them over our own goods for their own good. <laughs> I always think about my relationship and physical touch, and I've used this before, but it's just true for me. It's a small little way. I, I remember <clears throat> um, <laughs> when, when we got engaged, you know, we hugged, and, and I'm, I'm a big high-five person. I high-five all day long. So we started going to premarital counseling and we took this love languages test. You guys know what it is? There's five of them. Uh, And one of them is physical touch. My wife took this thing and she scored a perfect score in the physical touch. All you could do, all all the points you can get. You know how many points I got? Zero. Not even one. I was almost negative on the physical touch. Here's my point. Is that sometimes my wife will come up and she'll just hug me for no reason. And I'll usually respond with what's going on, what's happening, what's wrong. Right? (laughs) Or she'll come up to me and say things like, I, I just need to be hugged right now. And I'll say, okay. And, and it's happened once or twice when I'll give her a hug and I'll say, we good yet? We done? How's that meter? How full is it? You know, I'm lucky to still be married, everybody, but we're going to get to that. The idea is simply that maybe my job shouldn't be seen of how, of how I feel comfortable in my marriage, but how can I love my wife in ways that sacrifice maybe the icky feeling I have and say, maybe I just need to hug her for a long time today. Maybe. And she's here, so I just committed to something, everybody. Um, Simply saying that your best good is to love your wife. The problem is it's hard for us because we see marriage as a conversation about control. We see marriage as a conversation about power. And I think Paul's saying it's less about that and more about mutual submission and love. There's a joke last week that I heard. A friend of mine came in town and I've known him for a very long time, and he's a little bit older than me, and he, he's to the point in his life when he uses the same seven jokes because they've worked for this long, so why change? And so somebody teed up a joke for him because his wife wasn't here. I said, how would your wife feel about that? And he says, I'm the head of my household. And then he says, but my wife's the neck that turns the head, right? That joke. And while that's funny and good, I still think it somewhat helps us or hurts us in seeing marriage as a construct of authority, power, and control when Paul's saying that maybe that's not the best good in marriage. And I hear what some people are saying. 
Well, Charlie, if nobody's in charge, and I'm not saying that, but if nobody's in charge, then chaos ensues. And I, I just don't know if I believe that. I don't. I, I think if we're both coming to a place of mutual love, respect, and service, that oftentimes compromise happens. I was talking to a friend of mine who's been married 46 years this week. And she said, in our 46 years, she said, maybe once, maybe once we came to a place where somebody had to make a decision because we couldn't. I think it's a beautiful way to talk about this loving oneness that the Bible calls us into in marriage. It's this idea that we're both going to love each other. And oftentimes when you get in conflict, you know what love looks like? Compromise. <laughs> if you're leaving relationship fights and you're saying, I won, nobody won. <laughs> All right, let me just tell you that right now. So I think Paul calls us into is this beautiful idea of a reverence for one another and a submitting to one another and, and overall a sacrificing love for one another that's embodied in who Jesus is. I was listening to a podcast this week on by the VeggieTales guy and I really like this guy. I just kind of found him because I never watched it growing up over the last few months and he quoted a theologian and for me it just spoke to how I think marriage's relationship should be. It said, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. When I think about marriage, when I think about what Paul's talking about, I, I think he's saying this is how we live and love one another as the family of God. And so he says, wives, submit to your husbands, but, but husbands, love your wife sacrificially. Huge statement in that first century world. And then he goes on, he said, you're not done just with your wife. You have kids, Right? And he's going to move to kids. And before we get there, I, I found some quotes of kid things that I really liked by famous people. I love what Ray Romano says about kids. Having children is like living in a frat house. Nobody sleeps. Everything's broken. And there's a lot of throwing up. It's true. Uh, this is my personal favorite because my daughter is a dumper. Everything you have, she takes and she just dumps everywhere. Why? I don't know. And so uh, this is what Jerry Seinfeld said. A two-year-old is kind of like having a blender, but you don't have the top for it. That <laughs> is so true. One of my favorites is 90% of parenting is just thinking about when you can lie down again. Come on now, all right? And then when you do, they know it. It's this. So Paul says, children, obey your parents in everything, right? That's where he goes next because parenting stuff. He says, children, obey your parents in everything. This is pleasing to the Lord. This would have been the normative in that context and in that family dynamic construct. Children, obey. And this is not the word submit. This is not a, a if you want to thing. This is not a it should be your idea thing. This is I don't care whether you like it or not. Listen to your parents and do what they say. And understanding this comes from a biblical ethic that's way bigger than just the first century world. It goes back to the Ten Commandments when it says honor your father and mother that you may live a long time in the land that the Lord your God is, is giving you. That, it's the only 10 commandment with a promise at the end, by the way. So what he's tapping into is this biblical construct. This is why you obey your parents, because it's how God designed flourishing to happen. It's assuming a system of good parents. There's one quote um, that I think encapsulates kind of our idea of in all directions and all ways, but not necessarily always, Right? So understanding that, that if parents are good and they pass down the good things from God, it's how God designed this world to work and it's going to be better for you in the long haul. Think about it. Right now, our big deal with our daughter is to get her not to throw yogurt everywhere because nobody's going to want to date an 18-year-old that throws their food everywhere at dinner. This is for her good. <laughs> and when we talk about parental instruction and oversight, it's supposed to mirror how good God is for us. That's why it comes with a promise. 
Two, I think he says, obey your parents because it's a direct relationship or it's a direct um, uh, parallel to how we follow God. If you can't obey your parents, then how well can you really obey God? If you're the end goal of all things good for you, then ultimately it's going to kick up and you're not going to obey God because you're worshiping yourself. And so kids, obey your parents. It's the right ordering of world and it's so that you might flourish. And all the first century parents and all the parents here would say, absolutely, let's go home. But again, he speaks to the constant and then he gives the radical new. He says, obey your parents. And he says, fathers, do not provoke your children so they will not become disheartened. Let's talk for a second about the rights of kids in the first century and why this is so radical. Because we're thinking about it now and you're thinking, of course, how can you not love your kid? How can you not have an overwhelming desire for the good of your kid? Life wasn't always that way. In the first century world, kids had no rights. Kids had no rights. As a father, you could at any time, you could sell them into slavery. You could keep whatever money they made. You could actually, you could actually execute your child whenever you wanted because you were their dad. In the Roman world specifically, this is, gets pretty graphic, but in the Roman world specifically, the kid wasn't a member of the family until the father picked him up. So the midwife would give birth to the kid and they'd put him on a table or on the ground. And let's say the father believed they had too many kids, or let's say it was a girl and they didn't want a girl. The father would leave it down there, and then they would put the kid outside the door, and it would die from either exposure or somebody would take it. It's the first century world they lived in. And Paul says, in that world where you get to make the decision whenever you want, if a kid lives or dies, Paul says, you are called to not provoke your children so they will not be disheartened. And that word provoke there means don't do anything to make them bitter against you. Don't do anything to make sure that they have a recourse of anger because you haven't been good to them as God is good to us. He says, don't provoke them or get them riled up because you can, because you're in charge of them, because it doesn't dispute that in the text. I think there's two reasons why parents sometimes try and provoke their kids. I think one's negative, one's positive, or starts from. So let's just start with the negative. Uh, sometimes we try and provoke our kids because we're having a bad day and it makes us feel better if others share in our bad day, you know? I was driving home the other day and I was in traffic, which never makes me very happy. And my kid's yelling from the back seat and, and she wants a fruit strip, you know, these little all natural, I don't know, it's made from all healthy fruit, you know, whatever, way different than what I had in the nineties. And we had glow in the dark ketchup that was purple. But anyway, um, she wanted a fruit strip. I said, no, she already had one. She said, can I have another one? It wasn't going to hurt anything. This thing was so healthy. But I said, no, just because I was frustrated, I was mad, and I didn't want her to be happy when I was mad. Don't exacerbate your kids. Sometimes when you have long, hard days, drive around the block again and realize that your kid's good is in your hands and don't spread your bad to their good. Don't exacerbate your kids. But two, I think sometimes when it says that, it's because we want what's best for them and we feel like we're not getting it or they're not going to get it, you know? And it comes down to, I, I'm trying to poke you so that you might flourish. And that's hard. I think that when he says, don't do anything that provokes your kids, what he's calling parents to do is to love and accept their kids and to show their kids that they're valued, not for who they ought to be or should be or might be if they only tried a little bit harder, but to show value to your kids because they're your kids. Look what N.T. Wright says about it. Obedience must never be made the condition of parental love. A love so conditional would not deserve the name. So love your kids, not for who you want them to be or who they are now, or if they're not sleeping or they're throwing food or they're filling the blank here. Love your kid, not for who you think they could be if they put in more effort. Love your kid because love your kid because that's how God loves you. 
That's how God loves you. Not for who you're becoming in a year. Not for who you were yesterday when you looked better and were in a little better shape. Not for what you're becoming today as you try a little harder. God loves you for you and says, that's enough for me. But we're gonna make it better. And so he says, don't exacerbate or don't provoke or don't cause your kids to become angry with you because you don't lead in a godly way. And let me just tell you something. There's a whole other sermon series we could do on this. If you want a really great sermon series on family right now, Andy Stanley out of North Point in Atlanta is doing one. It's fantastic. Um, But he's just saying, recognize the weight of your role over your kids because it's big. It's big. You might not realize it because you might be in a space where you don't think they listen (laughs) or you don't think they care, but they do. My two-year-old on Friday is working most of the day and I'm trying to be there for her. I'm trying to show you, know, I'm sitting with my laptop while she's watching Daniel Tiger, trying to make, look, good parenting. And um, I, she got up from her nap and she said, dad, are you done working yet? And I said, no. And she said, you're done working. <laughs> I said, okay, I am. You know, they want you to be there. I didn't think she cared or understood. She had Daniel Tiger on the television. I was a youth pastor for a long time. I've sat in too many kitchens and too many living rooms and too many coffees when parents didn't think what they said to their kid mattered to us, even if they don't respond. Even if it seems like they don't care or listen, they hear it because your words have weight in your kids' lives every single time. And, and I know they've been true, whether they're two or 15, 22 or 72, because that's how God designed it. So he's saying, fathers, in this radical call, do not let your kids become angry because of the way that you lead them. It's this radical shift from a power dynamic to one that's governed by love. And then finally, he hits slaves at the end. We're going to spend a ton of time on it, mostly because it, it's harder for that to kind of translate over to our culture today. But, but let me take like two minutes-ish, and by two, I mean maybe 10. But let's take a little bit. And uh, I want to speak to the idea of, of slavery for a sec. Because if I'm being completely honest with you, one of the hard parts I have in wrestling through scriptures, and, and some of my friends that don't follow Jesus, they'd say the same thing, is that I wish, I wish, I wish Paul here would have just says, and slaves, go free, and masters, let them go. End the conversation, close the Bible, let's go home, you know? But here's the reality of it in the scriptures. The Bible never actually says, slavery's bad, don't do it. It doesn't. It seems that God is calling people inside of an institution to act and live differently. So just a couple things about this before we move on. One, so you have to understand when we see slavery in scripture, it's way different than the antebellum South that we see now. It was, it, was, it was not just part of society, it's how society ran. Conservative estimates say that in the Roman world, one out of every three people, 60 million people were in some form of slavery. And it, and it runs the gamut from, you had doctors for your family that were your slaves, and you had um, lawyers, and, and you had housemen and women, you had all these sorts of, of different kinds of socioeconomic class and status that could be or was enslaved to a family or a father. And so it's a different construct than what we see now. But know this, that when the Bible talks about slavery, it talks about it in radical ways. It talks about it in a way that only has one outcome, and it. I love what F.F. F. Bruce says, He said about slavery, um, he says, what Paul's letters do is to bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. Because once again, what Paul's trying to do here is change institutions through transformed individuals. Just because he doesn't say slavery, go away, doesn't mean he supports it in any capacity. And as you read the scriptures about this topic that's really tough, you kind of begin to see that over time. Because here's another truth about this text is Paul wasn't really that interested in changing institutions because he thought Jesus was coming back in like maybe two or three months, right? 
He didn't think he'd be there for that long. It's kind of a theme in the uh, New Testament text that we see. Give all your stuff away in Acts 2. We don't need it anymore. God's coming back. And God is coming back, but his time, not ours. And so what he's saying is, hey, you live in this broken system. I know it. Let me speak to the system. Then let's transform the system. So he says, I'll quote the rest of the text. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in every respect. Not only when they're watching like those who are strictly people pleasers, but with a sincere heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you're doing, work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not for people. Because you know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Serve Christ. For the one who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there are no exceptions. What Paul does here is he outlines kind of a different way for slaves to look at what they're doing. And I want to be really careful here. Um, you know, it's really easy, and I think there's some one-to-one here of taking this and saying, this is work is worship, and so whether I love my job as an accountant or not, I need to live like this. And that's true. But this is speaking to a really horrible system of oppression, and Paul doesn't want it to be there anymore. And so we can take away some one-to-ones about whatever you do, do it well. Do it with excellence and change your perspective, which is what he calls these people to do. So you don't work for people, whether you're an accountant or whether you're forced to work for people, you work for God. So do it and do it well. And then he says, ultimately, to slaves, understand that you will get an inheritance one day. That wording in the first century would have been absolutely outlandish because slaves didn't get anything. But what God is saying here is remember you're working for things that injustice can never take away, no matter how bad it gets. What I'm going to give you, no matter how bad your day-to-day is, no matter how bad those who are in control of you, no matter how bad that gets, they cannot take away what I will give you. Keep that in mind in the day-to-day when it's not fun and not good. Because this is not the system of parental guidance and your, your parents want what's best for you. It's an unjust system. And so he says at the end of this, masters, treat your slaves with justice and fairness because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Theologian said, this is a gentle reminder that earthly rank has no relevance in heaven. And so you had the constant of slaves. You're still going to be slaves, but, but work good and work for God and get the perspective of Jesus in this really broken moment because he's not about the brokenness. He's about restoration of brokenness in the long term. And then he says to masters, here's what's radical. Hey, treat your slaves like people. He says, treat your slaves like people and treat them with equity and with fairness. Treat your slaves like you would treat another person radical. And we know that to be true now. What I love about this text is it shows us kind of the influence over time that transformed individuals have on institutions, whether that be family or slavery. The fun fact, whenever we've seen slavery in the world and whenever there's been a majority of Christians that live into the teachings of Paul, slavery dies, right? It might take time, way longer than we want, but it dies because you cannot, you cannot, you cannot follow Jesus well and believe it's okay to have people that are subordinate to you in rank and people that are subordinate to you in equality when those two things come together. And over time, in this country and in others, when you've seen Christians take the lead and live this out well, slavery, the institution, fundamentally wilts and dies, as F.F. Bruce said. And so what Paul does in this text is end by saying, masters, treat yourselves with justice, their slaves with justice and fairness, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And that's what he's doing in this whole text. He's confronting the authoritarian control of the one who's in control, and he's saying it's not about control in the first place. Because you have somebody that you report to. It's interesting in this, in this text, the term Lord appears seven times. It's, it's a driving principle in our text. And what he's saying is the old ethic of power is, is replaced by a new ethic of our new family under Jesus who is Lord. 
He's saying you transform the currency that you use in your relationships. It's a book that I really like called The Power of Habit. And in The Power of Habit, he talks about these keystone habits. And the author defines keystone habits as small changes or habits that people introduce into our routines that unintentionally carry over into all aspects of our life. And so he, his first example of a keystone habit is exercise. And he quotes some studies. He said, they've shown that people who exercise regularly three or more times a week, they tend to eat healthier, consume less alcohol, smoke less, and be more productive at their work and sleep better than those who don't. I think what we're dealing with here is a habit of control and a culture that valued control in their culture and partly in ours. And I think his point here, when he talks about the relationship of the family or the toughest proving ground for our faith for followers of Jesus, he's simply saying to us, it's not about who has control in the family. It is about what is controlling your family. The reign, rule, lordship, love of Jesus. And so when we have conversations about what family life looks like in the first century world, we have to reject the notion of the tyranny of the most selfish member and say that God has called us to selflessness in this family because it models how he loves us. It's not about control anymore. It's about radical service and radical love. And it's about watching our families flourish in that context. But it's hard for us because we live in a day, in a culture, in a place when we value things in terms of control. So it's a ra radical new way with families. <laughs> because it's so easy, you know, to think that my family is there to serve me. It's so easy to want my home to be the place that I can fully be me and just worry about me. It's so easy to, to see my family as there to make me happier. And that does happen when we serve one another, though. So today I'm going to go home and probably hug my wife once or twice just because I said so to you people, right? I'll give my wife, or my, my wife, I'll give my kid all the fruit strips she wants until my wife says not to. <laughs> I'm serving, you know? But I think the question here, and what Paul's saying, is what does it look like for you to give up your right to control and to serve instead, to love instead? That you may be guided by the power of Christ in your family life. And oftentimes it's going to be small things in the day-to-day, -day, you know? They might be getting up and making coffee first because, you know, they like it. That might be doing the dishes late at night. That might be... That might be a really big moment or act of gravitas. Just don't share that on social media and set expectations too high for me, okay? But mostly it's about how we can. We can live under this guiding principle, not of control, but of service to one another and watch your families flourish. That's what he's calling us to do. One of my favorite stats to point to people about the healthiness of Christian families. I'm sure you guys have heard it before, but... There's this stat out there that says that 50% that of marriages in America end in divorce. And then it's usually when I'm talking to people that either have faith or mostly don't, they say, yeah, but Charlie, the, the Christians aren't any different. The Christians still get divorced at a rate of 50%. And to that, I'd say, you know, that's just not true. It's really actually heartwarming and good. There was a study done literally last year by, by David Wil Brad Wilcox of the National Marriage Product Project. And he says, I quote, active conservative Protestants who attend church regularly are 35% less likely to divorce than those who have no religious preference. And let, let me state something pretty obvious. It doesn't matter how many times you walk into a church building, he's using that as a litmus for how seriously do you take the claims of Christ not to pursue control, but to pursue, but to pursue one another. Another study said that contrary to what's been reported for years, the divorce rate is not 50%. It's more like 25%. And we find that people who keep God at the center of their home and family stay married at far greater rates 
and even thrive within those marriages. And I can give you examples. One of my best friend, Victor, his parents got divorced when he was a kid. They weren't believers. They both found God in separate places and they got married about five years ago again, you know? This idea that, that Paul is saying, under the new family of Christ, we have a new controlling principle and it's not control anymore. And so we, like Paul has said, we, like we receive from Jesus, we, we rule our families through the rule of love. And we watch as God uses that to flourish us and to grow us and ultimately to grow our affections for him and then big picture to grow how everybody else around us sees the beauty of the God that we serve. Let me pray for us.